I was that dad. I was that dad that messed up our financial situation so badly that I put my entire family in jeopardy. I was that dad. My wife Sharon and I, we started off with nothing. How many of y'all started off with nothing? You remember, we ain't got money, honey, but we got love. Good thing too, because we ain't got any money. I started buying and selling real estate and I got rich. By the time I was 26 years old, I had about $4 million worth of real estate. At least by a kid from Antioch, Tennessee's standards, that's rich. But I borrowed too much money and I didn't know what I was doing. I was stupid. And I didn't know that the borrower is slave to the lender. Bank got sold to another bank, called our notes. We spent the next two and a half years of our life losing everything we owned. We were sued and foreclosed on and the electricity got cut off and the water got cut off and the house was in foreclosure. Had a brand new baby and a toddler and a marriage hanging on by a thread. Because money fights, well, they're the number one cause of divorce in North America today. Sharon and I, we didn't get a divorce, but sometimes we held on to each other just to get a better grip. Y'all know what I mean. <laughs> I was 28 years old and I was scared completely out of my mind. I couldn't breathe. I remember standing with a shower so hot in my face I could just barely stand there and just stand there and cry. Finally, I didn't know what to do, you guys. I didn't know what to do. I run into people, got all the answers. I didn't have all the answers. And finally, September 23rd of 1988, we filed bankruptcy. I was that dad. And I was born that year. So I was born in April and mom and dad filed in September. Some people tell me that I was born at the worst possible time, the crash. But I see it differently because I think I was born at the best time because it was their fresh start. You see, I literally had a front row seat of watching Dave and Sharon Ramsey not only figure out how to handle money, but God's ways of handling money. And because of that, I believe my life and my legacy has forever been changed. And I think that's why one of my favorite calls on dad's radio show is when people call in to do their debt-free screams. If you've heard this, people will call in and, and they'll share their journey about how they became completely debt-free. And then at the end of the call, at the top of their lungs, in front of six million listeners, they get to scream out that they are debt-free. And what you hear in their voices, I believe, are these chains dropping off. Because there's a sense of freedom that comes with not owing anyone something. And so, Dad actually does his radio show live in, in our office in Nashville. So when you come into our office building, his, his studio's off to the right with a big glass wall so you can literally watch him do the show. Across from that, there's a little cafe called Martha's Place where there's cookies and cakes and cappuccinos and coffee being made. And so people will literally drive or fly from all over America 
to come to Financial Peace Plaza to do their debt-free screams live in our lobby. And that's really one of the perks about working at the office is because you can walk through this lobby between one and four on any given afternoon, and you get to meet these people, you get to see these people. You know, you'll see the 60-year-old couple sitting at the high-top table in the corner who just paid off their house. You'll meet the single mom who drove up from Atlanta with her 15-year-old teenage son who became debt-free. But the ones that always get me are the young families that come in. The doors to our office will open up and a little five-year-old boy will come sprinting in because he's been in the car for eight hours. <laughs> a dad will walk in behind, them with a, with, behind him with a two- or three-year-old little girl attached to his leg, and she's in little footy pajamas, and her little blonde curls are stuck to her face, and she's been sleeping. And then a very, very, very tired mom walks in behind them with a little nine-month-old on her hip. And this family gets together, and they put the radio headsets on with the microphone, ready to get on their call with dad. And, and they get on, and, and they'll say things like, the, the, the dad will say, Dave, we took out an extra job, and I worked nights and weekends to finally pay off our student loans. The, the wife will chime in, and she'll say, Dave, we didn't take our beach vacation that we've taken every year for the past five years. And we took all that money, and we finally paid off the cars. And then towards the end of the call, dad will say these magical words. He'll say, okay, count it down. Let's hear your big debt-free scream. And when you watch these parents as they gather up their kids and they bend down for the kids to reach the microphone because the kids, they know they have one job to do. <laughs> and they've been practicing for eight hours for this moment. But I watch these parents, and I watch their eyes as they, as they get their kids together, and I just think, those parents have literally moved mountains, made so many sacrifices to change their family tree. And that dad gets to look at his kids, and he gets to say, are you ready? Three, two, one. And in unison, this whole family with these little chipmunk voices in the background scream out together, we're debt free. And every time I hear those calls, it just makes me cry. And I look at that family and I just, and I just, I just cry because I think I was that little girl you know, my parents, they could have gone right back into their old ways and their old habits. But they drew a line in the sand. They said, enough is enough. We're only doing what Scripture says to do with our money. And because of that, again, my life has changed. And I get so, so excited for that little girl because I know what's in store for her in the next 10, 15, 20 years of her life. Because I was that little girl. So how do we raise children in such a way that they become biblically wise, money-smart adults. You see, my friend Andy Andrews says, we don't want to raise good kids. We want to raise kids in such a way they become good adults because we want them to leave. <laughs> so how do we pull this off? How do you teach money-wise, biblically-based concepts to kids? Well, I know there's a lot of things that go in this recipe for sure, and we're sure not going to cover them all here today. But 
I do know, Rachel and I are sure, there are at least three things you have to really get through to them to be able to raise them that way. The first thing you teach them is God owns it all. You teach them God owns it all because the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, a neat thing happens when you teach a child that God owns it all. You see, we live in a very kid-centric culture. In a kid-centric culture, things have shifted to where we're worshiping children. We don't need to worship children. They're precious, and we'll do anything for them. But we cannot let the inmates run the asylum. (laughs) So we have to teach them that God owns it all because what that does is it takes them off the center stage. They start to learn humility immediately when that happens. Because when God owns it all, turns out the axis of the world does not run through the top of your little head. (laughs) Go figure. And, And it changes the way you handle money when you understand God owns it all. It does for me. I handle money differently when I'm managing it for someone that I adore, someone that I worship. I will handle it better for him than I would have for me. And your kids are exactly the same way. And you got to do this in everyday life. I remember one time we finally got a decent car. I mean, when we went broke, we lost everything. I got the first car I got. The predominant color on this puppy was Bondo. Y'all know what I'm talking about. I mean, we drove Hoopteville, right? We, we were Hoopties all over the place. And finally, we moved up out of that. We saved up our money, and we got our first decent, good used car. And I don't know how you guys celebrate getting a new car at the house, but we load all the kids in it. We drive around the block and have that first new car experience, right? This is a good used car, and finally we got it. And I'll never forget Rachel's little brother, Daniel. He was one of those little guys. I guess he's probably six or eight years old, somewhere in that range. We pull in the driveway from doing our little drive around. He flops back on the back seat, drops his arms back, and says, Dad, we're doing pretty good. (laughs) I started laughing. I said, Honey, I'm doing pretty good. You got nothing. You have to reinforce this idea of ownership the whole time you're dealing with them in the normal ebb and flow of life. And so the first thing you got to really make sure that they get is God owns it all. The second thing you want to be able to teach your kids so that they are biblically wise, money smart adults later in life is you have got to teach them the value of work. The value of work. The soul of the lazy man desires and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. The diligent prosper. You want to teach your kids to work. And not only just work, but the idea that money comes from work. Money does not come from mom and dad's back pocket. And so growing up in the Ramsey house, we were never given an allowance growing up. We were always on commission. So you work, you get paid. You don't work, you don't get paid. And so we, we learned that very early in life. And I love that because allowance seems like you're, it's like you're saying to your children, you're deficit. You're not able to succeed, so we have to help you. What mom and dad did with us is they instilled dignity to say, no, you can actually accomplish something. And they made us do that. And then they attached money to that as well. And obviously this work is very age appropriate, right? When your four-year-old cleans up their room, they're not really cleaning up their room, right? They're picking up a few toys and mom and dad are doing the rest. And that's okay, because they're four. But, the, but the, their responsibilities should increase the older they get. And when your kids make money, there's really a couple of things they can do with it and something that you can kind of watch over and help them. The first thing they're gonna learn to do is spend money. And that's okay, let them enjoy some of the money they've earned. But they're going to learn that money is finite. 
When it's gone, it's gone. There's boundaries, there's limits with money, and you wanna teach your kids that as they're spending the money they've earned. You wanna teach your kids to save. In Proverbs, it says, in the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil. A foolish man devours all he has. Wise people save. Foolish people spend everything they make. So teach your kids to save. Mom and dad growing up told us that they were not going to pay for a car when we turned 16, that we had to save up. And what the, the amount of money we saved, they would match. And dad called that his 401 Dave plan. <laughs> and so when my older sister did it, when she turned 16 and they made her do it, I realized, okay, they are serious about this whole thing. Uh, so I went crazy and started working like crazy. I mean, I, I opened up two little side businesses. I mean, I just went nuts. And I ended up saving $8,000. So I got a $16,000 car paid for with cash at 16. And I tell you that, thank you. Very nice of you. But I tell you that not because of the amounts or even because of the match, because maybe you sitting out here, you know, you watching may think, I cannot financially match half of what my child's gonna save, and that's okay. But what that did for me at 16 years old, it taught me work ethic, it taught me patience, it taught me goal setting, it taught me delayed gratification. It taught me so many things. And I'm telling you, parents, when I sat in that car at 16 years old, you better believe I drove that car much differently than my friends that were just handed cars. You take a sense of ownership in a good and a prideful way of, yes, okay, I did this. I can manage this well. There's a sense that you, you know, a, a, a prideful sense in a good way. When your kids save up and they work for something, give them that dignity. And lastly, your kids, you want them, is really the first thing you want them to do, but is give. Teach them to give some of the money that they've earned. In scripture, it says that we were made in the image of God. And God is the biggest giver of us all. So if we were made in his image, and he is a giver, we were created to be givers. And I'm telling you, when your kids, even as young as five, six years old, when, you, when, when they take some of the money they've earned and not you just giving them a dollar in the church parking lot, but the money they've earned and they give that away and they do that week after week, month after month, year after year, their little hearts change and they become more and more like Christ is what I believe as they're living with this open hand mentality. And so teaching your kids the value of work and how to spend, save, and give gives them a solid foundation to stand on as they're adults. So we're going to teach them God owns it all. We're going to teach them the value of work. And the third thing we want to teach them is contentment is the antidote. You see, we live in a crazy culture. Have you noticed? Maybe. It's nuts out there. And, and, and the materialism is just run amok. Now, I'm not against having nice things. I'm against worshiping nice things. Having nice things is fine, but when you spend your life worshiping at the altar of them, you have a problem with contentment. The Bible says godliness with contentment is great gain. And so when you can teach contentment to your child, you have given them the antidote. You have vaccinated them against the culture and the impact of the greatest idol that we're worshiping out there today, which is stuff. Now, again, I'm not against stuff, but I am against the worship of stuff. Now, contentment is an amazing thing. Content people, they don't always have the best of everything, but they make the best of everything. How many of you are like me? You had a three-year-old child, and you bought them a really nice gift for Christmas or for a birthday. 
They open the thing and you look up 10 minutes later and they're playing in the box. <laughs> so frustrating. Now me, bad dad, I, I, what I did was I said, oh no, no, come back over, I'll teach you materialism. No, you're playing with the wrong thing, come over and play with this. But that's not what content people do. They just make the best of everything. Like my friend Zig Ziglar used to tell this about the psychological study of the two, two boys. One was an optimist and one was a pessimist and they took them to do the study and they built two rooms with glass walls and filled them with manure and put the little pessimist in one, the little optimist in the other. They came back a few hours later and the little pessimist is sitting in the corner of the room full of manure crying. They said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm crying. You put me in a room full of manure. What'd you think I was gonna do? Nothing good ever happens to me. And they walk in there with the optimist and he's in the middle of the room with the manure throwing it in the air. And they're like, kid, what are you doing? With all this manure, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> Contentment is your view of things. It's your perspective of things. Now, I'm not positive how you can teach contentment, but I am sure there's one element to it. One element of content people is they're grateful people. Teach your children gratitude in order that they might become content. Gratitude starts with basic things like please and thank you. Thank you, and you mean it. And I'll tell you what an element of gratitude is. You're not grateful for things if you think you're due them, if you feel entitled. Entitled people are the opposite. They're arrogant. There's an arrogance to entitlement. I'm owed this because I'm walking the earth. That's a sense of entitlement, and that starts at childhood. You can break that by working with them and teaching them humility. Humility will give you gratefulness because you feel like, how can a kid from Antioch, Tennessee, who went completely broke, end up standing here doing this? I'm just amazed. Thank you, Lord. There's natural gratitude that comes from natural humility, from realizing your place on the planet and your place within the universe. God is God and you are not. Teach your children this. And if you want to create generosity, oh, let me tell you what generosity does, what Rachel was talking about. It creates, it's the antidote for selfishness. Your child, when they learn to give and they learn to put others first, it shifts the selfishness bug out of them. All of this mixes together with humility and gratitude to create contentment. Generosity is a big part of that. When Rachel was a little kid, she was the one that was the most full of herself. Dobson wrote a book about her, The Strong-Willed Child. She was the one at four years old that would put her hands on her hips and look at you and just defy you. If she wasn't so cute, we probably would have just taken her out, you know? It was amazing. And she was in kindergarten, and her kindergarten teacher gave the little kindergartners an assignment. She said, I want you folks in kindergarten here, our five-year-old kindergartners, to draw a picture and write down what you would do if you had $100. Now, if you haven't had a kindergartner in a while, $100 is somewhere around $10 million. <laughs> She brought this home, and the little homework papers and her older sister's homework papers are there. We're sitting in the floor in front of the couch, thumbing through them, and we picked this thing up, started reading through it, and we were laughing at these kids. Scott H. says, if I had $100, I'd want a car that changes into everything. <laughs> and okay, Allison says, if I had $100, I'd buy a little dollhouse. You're right. It'd be little. Andrew L. says, if I had $100, I'd buy a swimming pool with a diving board, a football, a gun, and a bomb. <laughs> Put this kid on the terrorist watch list. 
Anna Catherine says, if I had $100, I'd buy a house for the cat. You could get the cat. And we got to Rachel's, and we figured our little character was going to be the funniest of all the characters, because that was pretty much God setting us up. As we flipped to hers, and it caught us off guard, and we both looked up at each other, and we were both crying. As Rachel's said, if I had $100, I'd give it to the poor people. Amen. Teach your children contentment. Teach them generosity as an element of contentment. Teach them that God owns it all. Teach them the value of work and that contentment is the antidote. I, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say I have a confession to make that I do not remember doing this. But I can tell you probably what was going through my mind even at, yes, five years old. You have to realize parents, through most of parenting, but specifically with this money stuff, that more is caught than taught. Your kids are watching you. And I can remember sitting in my sister's hand-me-down dress, sitting in the pew in the church we grew up in, in a red velvet offering bag with two wooden handles on each side would get passed down our aisle, passed down the pew every Sunday. And I remember watching my dad, without fail, every Sunday, drop a folded check in that bag. And I'd, drop him, drop it, I'd see him drop a check in. And it wasn't this like lights flashing, hey kids, mom and dad are giving this week. I just saw it, that is how they lived out their lives. So parents, more is caught than taught. And as you're teaching your kids all of what we've talked about, this doesn't happen in just one big you know, money conversation or one weekend-long money summit that you think you're going to have with your kids. This happens in everyday teachable moments in the ebb and flow of life. And I believe handing them a little bit more of responsibility the older they get so they feel the weight of their own money decisions. It kind of reminds me of the way mom and dad parented growing up. There's kind of two extremes of parenting sometimes. There's one side that says, you know, well, let's just live in this little bubble. I don't want you to see the outside world. I don't want you to make any decision with your life because I don't want you to feel pain or harm, so we're going to just stay right here. And some of those kids are the ones that graduate high school and go off to college and go crazy, but they do that because they were never allowed to make any decision with their life. So when something came up, they made the wrong decision because their decision-making muscle was never built. But then you have the parents over here that say, you know, fly, little eight-year-old, fly and be free. Just run around the restaurant screaming and banging your silverware. It's fine, don't worry, you know. You're like, oh my gosh, please parents, please, please discipline, right? So it's the, the two extremes, and mom and dad tried to find the middle ground. And they did this in one way through an analogy of a rope. So the idea of the rope was that we were tied to one end of the rope, and they had the other end. And depending upon how well we made decisions, how trustworthy we were, they would essentially let the rope out and we'd have more and more freedom. But if we made a bad decision, they would pull the rope back in. I remember being in the eighth grade with some of my girlfriends, and we went to the movies. My mom dropped us off, and we decided not to see the movie, so we went across the street and got ice cream. She came back two hours later, couldn't find us. It was like this whole ordeal. We had a family meeting about it that night. And I remember Dad saying, Rachel, if you had called us on the payphone, because there weren't cell phones back then, right? If you had called us on the payphone, 
we probably would have let you go get ice cream, but you didn't, and you weren't where you said you were going to be, so now we can't trust you next time we drop you off, so we're going to have to pull the rope back in. But fast forward a few years, I was 15 years old at a high school party, and some adult beverages were being passed around, and I called my mom to have her come pick me up, and, and I got in the car, and she looked at me, and she said, Lots of rope, Rachel. You get lots of rope. Good decision, good choice. <laughs> so when my older sister Denise is graduating from high school and going to college, she was the first one to leave home. And if you've had your first one leave, it's a big deal, right? A big deal. So mom made this huge meal. We sat in the dining room table. You know, we ate on the fancy plates that you only eat on, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas. We had cloth napkins. It was just this very nice dinner for Denise. And we all went around the table and, and we were telling stories and laughing and crying. It was like she was dying or something, but she wasn't. <laughs> just moving two and a half hours away. But towards the end of that dinner, dad brought out a gift bag and he pulled this out of it, a rope. And he said to Denise, you know, gave her kind of the sweet dad going away to college speech and told her how proud he was of her and, and how you know, him and my mom, they're, they're not worried about her going off to college because they've been handing her a little bit of rope at a time. And now what's left of that rope doesn't reach from Nashville, Tennessee to Knoxville, Tennessee. And so now her everyday decisions are now up to her. She has the rope. And he tied different ribbons around it, symbolizing different areas of her life. So white was her purity, purple was her spiritual walk, orange was because she was going to the University of Tennessee, go Vols, red was her academics, and yellow was if she ever needed to come home. And he said, Denise, this is your passage into adulthood. And he handed her the rope. And we all just cried, we're like, Denise has the rope and she's never coming home again, everything's changing. Now, I'm the middle child of the Ramsey family, so the neglected and abused child, of course. <laughs> so the night before I went to college, we had pizza. <laughs> on paper plates, with paper napkins. And I was going to bed, and Dad was like, oh, Rachel, you need a rope, don't you? <laughs> went to the garage and handed me this. I'll let you decide which child is their favorites, but I think we all know. But I look at this rope and I see this as really my legacy. I see this as a legacy of life. I had parents who were not perfect, but were intentional with us. And I believe they've passed us on a legacy of life versus the legacy that could have been. In Deuteronomy it says, I call heaven and earth as witness today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. So choose life that you and your descendants may live. So I was 
that dad. But because Jesus intersected my life and intersected the life of my wife, we were completely transformed. He did that because he's crazy about me. He did that because he's crazy about you. You see, none of you are perfect parents, nor will you ever be. The Ramses weren't. But the fact that Jesus came gives us this thing called grace. Grace means you have a do-over. You have a chance to do something that will outlast you because of grace. Our family has been completely transformed. Our legacy has been completely changed. Yours can be too. You see, I was that dad. But because of Jesus, I became that dad.